I was working on this sermon a couple weeks ago, and I was homesick that week, and I got a little home office, and the big boys were at school, but Deacon was home that day. And I'd been in there for an hour or so working on this sermon, and all of a sudden, Deacon bursts through the door, and he looks at me, puts his hands on his hips, and he says, I'm going to try not to be mean to you today because I know you're sick. <laughs> and the more I thought about that, the more I laughed because um, it implies that if I was not sick, he would be mean to me, or at least he would not try to stop himself uh, from being mean to me. But today he's going to try to stop because I'm sick. And, he, and parents, you know this, when a parent is sick, it turns the child's world upside down, right? Like, you're supposed to take care of me. You're supposed to wait on me hand and foot, often what they think. You're supposed to be good and strong. And so to see your parent not like that really messes things up for you. And it just reminds me that how we see the world really changes a lot of things. And that's really what I want to think with you about today. Come with me here to this story in Acts 17. How we see the world changes things. I'm just going to jump in and read it to you. It really doesn't need an introduction. So let's go there. Acts 17, verse 1. <clears throat> when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So later, Paul's going to write a letter to these people who he's first meeting right here. And this is the letter to the Thessalonians. Okay. <clears throat> so let's see. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. <clears throat> he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, they started a riot in the city, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Pay attention to that phrase. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. That phrase there that these men who have caused trouble <clears throat> all over the world, if you, if you have another translation, it probably reads like this. This is how the ESV puts it. And I actually think this is the the best translation. It says this. Let's throw this next one up there on the screen. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. Anybody remember that line? These men who have turned the world upside down. All right. What is the charge that the bad guys are bringing against the good guys here? What they're accusing Paul and the other disciples of is sedition, which is a word we have not talked about in this country for a very long time, and suddenly it's on every news cycle, right? And we're not going to go down that rabbit hole this morning. Whew. <clears throat> but sedition is the accusation that someone is starting a revolt in order to overthrow the government. And that is what they're accusing the disciples of. And Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, he looked at that and he said, listen, 
This is, he calls it, a downright willful lie. He says the bad guys, they knew better than that. What does he mean by that? What he means is Jesus is not after Caesar's throne. Okay, he's not trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what Jesus or his disciples are about. Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Paul says, it's the goal of a Christian to live a quiet life. You should live in submission to the governing authorities. So these guys are not after a military coup. Interestingly, who is it that starts the revolt in this scene? It's the bad guys, not the good guys, okay? So the ones making the accusation are actually the ones in danger of doing the thing they're accusing these guys of. <clears throat> but the reason that the accusation sticks, at least in part, is because it's a lie that is based on a deep truth. It's just a slight distortion of that truth. Well, what's the truth? Well, these accusers, the bad guys, are hearing Paul correctly. He is saying, there's another king. That's what Messiah means. It means the anointed king. So they're hearing him right. He is saying there is another king. They just don't understand that he does not believe Jesus is in competition with Caesar for Caesar's throne. He thinks Jesus is far above Caesar. That he's the king above all kings. And if you believe that, this is where those guys are right who are making the accusation. If you believe that there is a king above all other kings in whom all things hold together, then that really does turn your world upside down. And suddenly what has value, according to the earthly kings, according to the culture around me, according to the people around me, suddenly what has value to all of them is turned upside down, and I see the world very differently. And so I was thinking about that. I was just reflecting on that image, those men who have turned the world upside down. I was trying to think about where do you experience upside down in life, and it may just be because I was hungry, but immediately I thought about Dairy Queen, right? And when you go to Dairy Queen and you order a blizzard, they turn it upside down to prove to you that it's consistency, right? And noticeably, they only do this right when it comes out of the machine when it's still cold. They don't wait five minutes and then turn it upside down. So Russ and I were thinking about that image and he's like, let's make a video about that. So at 9 a.m. in the morning, I went and ordered a large blizzard at Dairy Queen across the street. For the record, it's $6.50, okay? I run back over here to shoot this video and it takes us about five minutes to shoot that video, okay? And in the course of five minutes, I ate three quarters of a large Oreo blizzard at 9 a.m. in the morning, just shooting that, that video. So I love an Oreo blizzard. But I think about that moment where they turn it upside down and what occurs to you when they turn it upside down, even if you've been to Dairy Queen a thousand times, okay, as long as that cup is right side up, everything inside of it is safe. But the moment they turn it upside down, it could come spilling out, right? It could, and so there's this moment of, Ugh! You know, when they turn it upside down, as many times as you've been there. And I was thinking about that as I was reflecting on the visual in this scene. So, like I said, this image has been really important to Christians for a long time, and I want you to see it this morning. We're going to put it up here on the screen in just a second. Let me set it up, though. G.K. Chesterton was a great preacher for many, many years, and he wrote a biography of this other great man of God named St. Francis of Assisi. And he was reflecting on a dream that St. Francis had, 
and this passage, Acts 17. And he said that Francis had a dream of his town, Assisi, Francis of Assisi, turned upside down. His little European town, he saw that town turned upside down. So I don't know what a CC looks like, and I didn't think it would help you to see a CC, but here's Memphis. Let's throw Memphis up on the screen here. Okay, when you look at your town right side up, everything looks permanent, everything looks secure and safe and lasting. And he says St. Francis saw his town turned upside down. So let's see Memphis turned upside down. Let's do that there, okay? And he said... The moment he saw his town turned upside down, it totally changed the way he saw the world around him. That suddenly he saw his little town not as safe and penetrable, permanent and powerful. He saw it as hanging in utter dependence on God. Uh, Suddenly, all, those, all the stonework in his old European town, that all the deep and heavy foundations of these old buildings and castles that he saw all around him, suddenly those things that made his world seem permanent or unshakable, all of that weight when turned upside down made all of those same structures more in peril in his mind, more at risk. He saw them as in danger of falling from the cosmos. He said it like this. Let me read this to you. St. Francis might love his little town as much as before after this dream, or more than before. But the nature of the love would be altered, even in being increased. He might see and love every tile on the steep roofs or every bird on the battlements, but he would see them all in a new and divine light of eternal danger and dependence. Instead of merely being proud of his strong city because it could not be moved, he would be thankful to God Almighty that it had not been dropped. He would be thankful to God for not dropping the whole cosmos like a vast crystal to be shattered into falling stars. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? This is what occurs to Francis. I have been looking at the world wrongly. And it is only when I see the world turned upside down in utter dependence on the Lord that I actually see the world around me rightly. That's what he says. So is this a gimmick? Is this like, that's what I'm trying to figure out about this image that has meant so much to so many Christians over the years. Is this a gimmick? Like one of those things, one of those pictures where you can look at it two different ways and see two different things and both of them are appropriate. Like, have you seen this image before? You know, the old, okay, let me not preface it. How many of you see in this picture a young woman looking away from the camera? How many of you see an old woman looking to the, to the right? You see that? We've got hands there. Uh, which one of you is right? Right, okay. Yeah, this is one of those illusion drawings where you actually see both. Do I need to point them out to you? Can you see both, the old woman and the young woman? Everybody see it? No? All right, see me later and I'll, I'll show it to you. Um, I don't think this is like that. We, we can take down, the, yeah, we can take that down. Everybody's like, I gotta figure this out. Um, 
I don't think this is like that. I don't think this is like, well, you can see the world this way or you can see it that way and both of them are kind of true. No, I think what Paul is saying is if Jesus is king above all, that there really is only one right way to see the world. And that is to see the world as utterly dependent and hanging upon his mercy and grace. Chesterton says like this, last quote from Chesterton, he says that we all depend, look at this, in every detail, at every instant, as a Christian would say, upon God, that is not an illusion of imagination. On the contrary, it's the fundamental fact which we cover up as with curtains with the illusions of ordinary life. But it is much more the ordinary life that is made up of imagination than the spiritual life. He who has seen the whole world hanging on a hair of the mercy of God has seen the truth. We might say the cold truth. He who has seen the vision of his city upside down has really seen it the right side up or right way up. Hmm. That's the image I want to give to you. Is that right? Are we seeing our world wrongly? And if we declare Jesus as king, does it change the way we see the whole world? So Paul is trying to prove his point here in this passage. He wants to prove that Jesus really is king over all. And that because of his kingship over all things, it really does turn upside down everything we value and cause us to trust in him instead of trusting in all other things. And so he wants to offer them proof that this is the case. And so he offers them a single proof. Anybody notice what it was? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at this. This is in uh, verses 2 and 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving what? The Messiah had to suffer and then rise from the dead. And this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. His proof that the world as you see it is really upside down is that the story of Jesus was upside down, according to the world. What does he mean by that? Every story in the history of humanity, every story in the history of humanity has moved in a single way. It has moved from life to death. Let's throw that up there on the screen. Every story has moved in this direction. Every story that's ever been told in the history of the world. So the way all the world has seen all of history has moved in this direction from life to death. And what he says is, the reason we know this is not right is because in the Jesus story, the two are flipped. And his story moves from death to life. And if you believe that, he says, then he is king over all. And the way that you and I make sense of the world apart from this truth is upside down and not right side up, if this is, if this is true. And I think this is part of why conversion is very difficult, why it is often difficult for somebody you and know and love to come from Jesus, uh, to come to Jesus and trust him with their whole life. Uh, because they live in a world that's upside down. And so to head up is to them heading downward. Or to head down is to them heading up. Let me give you a visual for this. For uh, 
divers, scuba divers. There's a condition that can come upon a scuba diver who's been down there for a long time where they can no longer tell which way's the surface and which way's going deeper, which way's down and which way's up. It's a really dangerous condition that could come upon a diver. And so you can imagine if you're a diver and you're swimming deeper and deeper downward, thinking that you're going up, you are getting in greater danger with every stroke you take, right? Now imagine what would compound this is if your little instruments that you're carrying with you, if those instruments themselves were broken. Then you would look at those instruments and convince yourself you are heading up when in fact the instruments themselves are lying to you. Like this is really the human condition. It's a condition of living in a world that is upside down according to its values and fails to see that all things hang upon the mercy and grace of our King Jesus. And at the same time, all the instruments around us in our world tell us it's right side up and tell us this is the way that it should be. And so you can imagine if you were a diver swimming down to grab hold of somebody and to pull them back up, how difficult it would be to convince them that down is actually down and not up towards the light. But those who come to believe that the world is not as it seems and is in fact in the mercy and at the mercy and grace of Jesus discover a deep and abiding trust in him that sustains them through life. I can trust him because, well, like we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, we went to have dinner with some friends the other night and um, it was an impromptu dinner. We had been at some event or something like that. And they're like, hey, y'all just come over and eat dinner with us. And so, but, but they said, hey, but just excuse us. Our house isn't clean and they have, they've got young kids. We understand that. And so they're like, but come on over. Well, apparently they get in the car and they tell their kids, listen, before the gentries get here, clean as much of the house as you can. And so they run into the house and they all start cleaning. But one of their children goes instead to the craft drawer and gets a piece of paper and writes on that piece of paper, in Christ we trust. She draws a cross on it and she puts it like a pyramid as a centerpiece in the middle of the table. And so we sit down at the table to eat and we're just remarking on how beautiful this centerpiece is. And the parents admit, well, uh, that was not there three minutes ago. Um, <clears throat> apparently, when, when we said, hey, go clean the house, what she heard was make our house look as spiritual as possible before the preacher gets here. And uh, I love that. Here's what I love about her is that her impulse was to say, our family trusts Jesus. Like what seems most true to her? Our family trusts Jesus. That's who we trust. Right? And that is really the power of this image. You know, uh, God calls out the Israelites in Isaiah and he calls them out for what they're trusting in. Look at what he says. He says, and whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, which according to worldly standards looked very strong and permanent, like it would never fall or be shaken. You're trusting in Egypt. Well, that's a broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. What do you think God would say to us if he were to ask us, what are you people of God trusting in? What are you trusting in? What do you think he would say? You know, I, th I think if, if you do this, if you if you do this little mental exercise, right, of seeing the, the things that you face in this life is upside down and hanging upon the mercy of God, you see it like this. 
let's throw this up there on the screen. Like Job says, he suspends the whole earth over nothing. He does. Or like Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1, in him all things hold together. And so you can trust him. Trust him. Um, I, there were two young men. I'll, I'll finish with a story and then a, a word of scripture and dismiss you. There was two young men from Highland. Uh, grew up here at this church, recently graduated from college. Both of them starting careers, one in business, one in medicine. And um, I mean, they're at that very precarious moment in life where you have just finished school and you're launching into uh, your, the workforce. You're, um, you know, trying to make enough money to pay for this apartment that you've got and put furnishings in it. And you're not making a lot of money, right? Right at the start. So they're like right at that precarious moment. And both of them, it was really striking to me, both of them this summer took weeks off of those jobs to go to Africa as missionaries for the summer. Uh, one of them was doing medical work and also preaching the gospel. One of them was doing kind of business development stuff with African Christians there and also sharing the gospel there. And they were there for weeks making no money. In fact, spending a lot of their money to go. And I just think about how that makes no sense. <laughs> Right, like it makes no sense at all at that precarious moment in your life to go and do mission work in Africa at great cost to yourself when you don't know, frankly, how you are gonna pay your rent in August. It makes no sense to go and do that unless, well, unless Jesus is king and I can trust him. Do you see that? You know, Jesus tells us not to worry in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to say, like, Jesus, I don't know if you've seen our lives. There's a lot to worry about. He says, don't stress about money. You don't hoard up all your money and save that forever. And I want to say, Jesus, did you ever, a single time, talk to a financial planner? I don't think so. Uh, Jesus says, you should forgive. And I want to say to Jesus, we don't live in a world where forgiveness is valued. We live in a world where leverage is valued. In fact, you should never forgive, lest you lose it. What Jesus calls us to makes absolutely no sense unless he's king. The apostle Peter, according to legend, was crucified upside down. That's how he was martyred in Rome under Nero. And Chesterton said, reflecting on that story of Assisi and seeing his world upside down, he said, you know, you remember the apostle Peter? He died upside down. And he said, I wonder if he was the only one there seeing the world as it really was. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And I hope that'll be true for you. If you don't know Jesus, come down today. I'll baptize you into him. You can trust him this morning. Let me pray over all of you as I send you to Bible class. God, thank you for your body here gathered this morning. May our trust and faith in you grow. We believe that in you all things hold together. And so we trust you rather than anything else as our king. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.